if you have elementary age kiddos, we'd love them to be part of our uh, Vine Kids time directly out that side door there. They can track their way that direction. Well, again, welcome. If you're here for the first time, we want to tell you what an honor and privilege is to have you in worship with us. We are glad that you're here. It is a true joy. Uh, we say this each week. Our, our real deep desire is that uh, people would be nice to you and that you have an encounter with the risen Christ. Like that's our whole goal as a church. Not to entertain you or want you to come back and probably not even in that order. We'd love for you to encounter Christ and then have people be nice to you. But both will work. And so uh, that's our hope. And so uh, if that doesn't happen, then let me know and we'll kick some people out. But no, we are, uh, we're glad you're here. Um, we, you've kind of stepped in in the middle of this summer series. or actually the beginning of the sort of middle section of our summer series. We, we decided to do something a little bit different. A lot of times we like to, to kind of exegete text and really move through full books of the Bible as a way of just kind of looking historically at the Word and in its context. And we love to preach that way. Um, but we've taken a little bit of a different turn. We're still exegeting Scripture, which means working through it word by word, line by line, but we're exploring a different kind of way of doing that, and that's by looking at the historic names of God throughout Scripture. Names are incredibly important, right? They, they associate us with things, they tie us to places and people, they assign value. Uh, we've looked at that a lot over the past three weeks, and names are important in Scripture because they actually reveal the nature and character of God, both names that God has given himself and names that people have called God throughout Scripture. And they tell us a little bit about his character and about who he is. And so we've been exploring those. And we're now into week four. And we're going to be looking this morning at the third most popular name in all of Scripture that's used for God. The word Adonai. Now the first two that are the most popular, we talked about the first one being Yahweh. Right, the name that is used over 3,000 times to refer to God. It's his most personal and intimate name. It's a name that demonstrates both God's sort of awe-inspiring holiness, but his unbelievable personal nature of who he is, his invitation to know him, right? He gets that name, basically we get the name of the great I am, or I am who I am, where he, he kind of gives Moses that command to go and deliver the people from Pharaoh. And Moses says, who should I tell them? And he says, tell them the great I am sent you, or the I am sent you. And we talked about that week one, and we've explored that name, how God is holy and mighty and powerful, yet he allows us to know him by inviting us in to his relationship. And we explored that Christ is just as much the I am, and we talked through that piece. And then we looked at the name Elohim, which is the second most widely used name for God. And it really just means creator, the mighty one, right? The powerful one. And we talked about how God was from the very beginning on the onset, the one that hung the stars and formed the, the universe and made all these things and has this incredible might and power, right? And then Brandon last week talked about Jehovah Jireh, which is the idea of God as provider. That not only is God mighty and powerful and he is uh, holy and knowable, but he knows about our needs and wants to provide for them and promises to provide, and not just for the things that we need, but for our deepest need, our salvation. We talked about Abraham and his story of sacrificing his son or the call to sacrifice his son, how God provided a ram in the thicket and ultimately provided Jesus as the Lamb of God. And Brandon explained and talked us through God as the provider. Well, this morning, we're going to be exploring the name Adonai, which is the third most popular name in Scripture for God. It's used about 300 times, and it's really used to refer to God and his sort of sovereign lordship. The idea of the name is that God is Lord over all and supreme over all. So in all the context of things, right, God is the biggest. He is Lord and he is supreme, which means he has the authority and he has the power over all other 
things, which is a little bit different than the powerful name that we talked about with Elohim. We're now giving God the full authority, right? And he's oftentimes referred to as God Adonai. I want to show you how these names are used in connection with one another, right? So we're going to be in a bunch of different places today, actually three, not that many, but a bunch for, to me. Um, but I want to show you how they're all used in connection. It's just really cool. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, I want to explain these before we pray and dive into our text, because I think it's a, a really cool way of, of looking at this. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, 17, right, or 10, chapter 10, verse 17, we're going to see all three of these popular names for God at play. And this is what it says. It says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. So if you look at that sentence and you actually glance at it in the Hebrew, essentially this is what it says. For the Lord, Yahweh, right, which is why we see it capitalized there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Yahweh, for Yahweh your God, which is the word Elohim, right? So for Yahweh, Elohim, and that's how we get the Lord your God. When the Yahweh and Elohim are used side by side in Scripture, it's always translated as the Lord your God, meaning God is holy and mighty yet infinitely just and knowable, Yet he is creator and powerful and mighty. All that's wrapped up in that. So it says, for Yahweh Elohim is Elohim of Elohim. So he's basically saying that God, supreme Yahweh, knowable, powerful, holy, mighty Yahweh, is God, capital G, of lowercase g. Right? He is God of all gods. And then he goes on to say, and he is Lord of lords. And that word there is the word Adonai. He is Lord of lords. So Adonai of Adonai. So basically he's saying that Yahweh, right? Yahweh Elohim, the Lord your God, is Elohim of Elohim and Adonai of Adonai. He is all of God over all the gods and Lord over all the lords. Meaning that not just the things that we worship, right, but the people of this earth and all that was created, God is supreme over all. For the Lord of lords, your God, right, Elohim, is mighty and awesome. So the reason I make mention of that is because these names matter. And when we look at our text in English, so much is lost in its depth. It's why studying and executing scripture is so deeply important. Because to look at that one verse and realize what's being explained to the Jewish people essentially is this incredible thing that God is calling you to. He encapsulates all of it. There's not an aspect that he is not. He is holy and mighty and knowable and intimate, right? He is powerful and he is supreme and he is bigger than all the things you could possibly worship. And he's bigger than all the things that possibly have mastery over you, right? He is God of gods, lowercase g, and he is Lord of lords, lowercase l. He is powerful and he is mighty. In other words, there is nothing that God is not. And in that one sentence encapsulates this incredible picture of who God is. Now, the word Adonai is probably what I think to be the easiest concept of God to understand, right? That he is Lord, that he is supreme over all, and that he is Lord over all, but the most difficult to understand and to actually put into practice. We see this throughout Scripture. We're actually going to explore that this morning, the complicated nature of saying that God is Lord, that Jesus is Lord, and actually believing that and acting on it are very very different things. Um, so as we prepare our hearts to go before the Lord, we're going to pray, and then we're going to be in a couple different places, and I'll kind of explain why this is hard and some principles that we need to stick to along the way. And we're going to look at some guys that have, that have kind of blown it in the picture, big people like Abraham and Moses, and, and we're going to explore um, kind of where they've fallen short and really where we need to uh, apply the principles that we learn through them to our lives. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll dive deeper into this this morning. 
Lord, I thank you that you reveal so much of your character to us through Scripture. God, you actually give us this incredible tool, this love letter. God, this, this thing that's been poured out to us that is both real and true. And you've explained who you are in such beautiful depth, and yet we barely can scratch the surface. I mean, how many of us over our lifetime have maybe glanced through Deuteronomy on a passing way through Scripture, or maybe not even read it at all? And yet in one tiny verse, in one tiny sentence, we uncover this just deep and beautiful nature of who you are, that you are awe-inspiringly knowable and personable. You are the great Yahweh. You are sacred and holy. And at the same time, you are creator and you are supreme and you are powerful. And you are more powerful than any God we will ever worship, any idol that we will put in our lives. And you are Lord, you are supreme over anything that says they have rule over us. Meaning, Lord, you are our only authority. All of that beauty wrapped up in who you are. And yet, God, still it doesn't shake us to the core. And so this morning, I pray, Lord, as we discover and dive into and explore the name Adonai, Lord, what you'd remind us of is that we are called as followers of Christ to surrender to your lordship. And it's very different than believing that you're God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the nature of what it means to say Jesus is Lord, that, God, you are my supreme Lord over all. What that means I must let go of, what that means I must die to, and what it means about who you are. Take a moment, just as you sit here this morning, as we prepare our hearts to go before the Lord in terms of his word, and just ask God to teach you. That he would teach you through his word, that he revealed truth to you, that he would open your heart to something that he wants to speak directly to you this morning. Ask the Lord, would teach, ask the Lord that he would teach you through his word this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. Just we do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Whether it's your husband or your wife or your children or somebody you don't know or maybe you're here for the first time and you think this is a little weird, just indulge me. Just pray for someone around you. Everything that unfolds on a Sunday morning here is really not about you. Love the idea that the people around you could be encountering the Lord. Desire to see them grow in Christ. Pray for them. Pray for other people. Take a moment and pray for the people around you this morning. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask you to be glorified and exalted in everything. Lord, you are Lord of all. You are supreme over all. You are God Adonai. And so, Lord, teach us what that means this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in three different places because we're going to explore three different principles of what I think it really means to fully understand the lordship of who God is and what he desires and demands for our lives. And so we're going to look at Abraham, we're going to look at Moses, and then we're going to look at Jesus as he talks to the disciples um, in those kind of places. And that first place we're going to be is actually in, um, it's in a place that we're going to discover sort of Abraham's initial journey. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. But before we get there, let me explain to you a little bit why I think this is the easiest concept to say and the hardest concept to put into kind of practice when it comes to understanding the names of God. Why understanding God as Lord and as supreme is easy, right, to say, 
but actually putting into practice is really hard. I read a, a, a deal out of a book this week as I was kind of looking through all this stuff. A guy by the name of Bob Shogren wrote a book called The Theology of Cats and Dogs, and it's basically a rediscovering our relationship with our master. And you can kind of go down the trail and figure out kind of what he's getting at. But basically he makes this kind of assumption when it comes to understanding lordship. He says, dogs kind of look at life and say this. They look at their master or their person. They say, you protect me, you feed me, you shelter me, right? Therefore, you must be God. Cats look at the same situation and say, you protect me, you feed me, you shelter me, I must be God, right? Now, I don't know, I don't have cats, I don't know how that goes, but you can see how quickly it turns to both desire obedience. Dogs see those things and want to obey and please. Cats see those things and say, I deserve and should get what you offer me. And he talks about the idea that dogs have a theology and cats have this meology, like life is about me and what you give me and how you nurture me and care for me. And dogs are more about saying this. And the whole book is really written in this sort of context of that. And the idea is how we have to rediscover ourselves, changing our relationship with our master, that we don't exist to be served by God, right? But instead, we exist to serve God. And it's an incredibly challenging thing because most of us, our lives are really oriented to lip service to God. My dad used to do that term all the time. We would say one thing and we would do something else. And he would call, he would basically say, don't Just give me lip service. In other words, put into action the things that you're saying. Don't tell me you're going to do it. Just go out there, actually do it. And that's really the concept of what it means to understand God as Lord, is to say, if I'm going to claim you as my supreme God over all things, or the God over all things, my life in some fashion has to exhibit that. In other words, you don't exist to just give me things, and I don't exist to demand things from you. But it's incredibly challenging to put into practice, because it involves an obedience that as we'll talk about in a minute, that leads to death to self. And it's challenging. And guys and girls all through Scripture have had this incredible challenge with this. It's not just you and it's not just me. We're going to look at Abraham and Moses and how they wrestled with this concept of fully giving into the lordship of God. And that's what we're going to turn our attention to this morning to start is is, uh, Genesis chapter 15. And these are the principles we're going to unpack. The first one is this, that, that the things that we say with our lips about our belief in God, right, And what we believe in our heart must align. So what our lips say about what we believe in God and what our hearts believe in God, those things must line up. And I'll show you what I'm talking about as we get into this. So life with Abraham is going pretty well in chapter 15. God has called him out of his land. He's left his land. Things are going really well. We're skipping a bunch of his story. But we get to this place where Abraham is afraid because he's reached a point in his life where he has no heir He's got no son, and he's an old man, and he's afraid. And he's afraid that he's going to die and have to leave all this to his servants, and there's going to be no one that carries on his line. And in those days, that was a huge deal. And Abraham had followed God, and God had given him all these great things, and they've had this back-and-forth relationship, but he's come to a place in his life where he's afraid. All right, And this is what he says to God. In chapter 15, let's look at verse 1. After this, a word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, why can you, or what can you give me since I remain childless? For the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So Abram's afraid. He's yet been given the name Abraham, but he's afraid because he's going to die and not have a son to give his inheritance and his lands to. And God knows this, and so God speaks to him in a vision. And he says, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I am your great reward. Right? And Abraham says, O sovereign Lord, what could you possibly give me? Because I remain childless, and what will happen is that a servant in my house is going to inherit my land. So if you look closely, what's unfolding here is really powerful. Abraham is afraid. God knows it, and God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, don't be afraid. I'm all you need. I am your reward, right? And I am your protector, your shield. And Abraham addresses God in this way, O sovereign Lord. The word sovereign there is actually the word Adonai. He says, O Adonai Yahweh. So he says, O Lord of all, supreme of all, intimate, knowable, holy God, right? So saying, God, I believe that you are holy. I believe that you are sovereign. I believe that you are mighty. I believe that you are Lord over all. I believe that you are supreme over all. You are Adonai Yahweh. What can you possibly give me, right? In other words, you are all these things, but I don't believe you can solve this problem. He said, what could you possibly give me, sovereign Lord, because I am childless. So what Abraham says is with his lips, he says, I believe that you are Lord. I believe that you are supreme and I believe that you are sovereign, but my heart can't get there. I can say it with my lips. I will say it out loud in my prayer life, but my heart betrays me because what he believed with her, what he said with his mouth and what he believed in his heart were different. And so he could easily address God as supreme And he could easily address God as Lord and easily address God as sovereign and holy. Yet his heart still didn't believe God could do that thing. I mean, this is our story, right? I'm so easy in my prayer life to go, God, you are giver of all things. You are mighty and holy. You are powerful. You are wonderful. And I am petrified that you can't do this thing or this whatever. My lips and my heart don't align. So to truly understand and surrender to the lordship of who God is, the things that we say with our lips must align with the belief of our hearts. So listen to what happens. So in verse 4, the word of the Lord comes to Abram again. And it says, this man will not be your heir. In other words, your servant won't be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside. Abram, and he had him look up at the heavens and count the stars, if you indeed can even count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited to him his righteousness. So God came to Abram, didn't ridicule him, but said, Abram, that man, that servant won't be yours. Remember, I'm your reward and your shield. Come with me. Takes him outside, and he says, look at all these stars. The billions upon billions of them, right? He says, count them. Try, if you can. Of course, he can't, right? And he says, this is what your offspring will look like. In other words, don't be afraid. I'm big enough. I'm Lord. I'm supreme. I will provide. And Abraham believed. He was like, okay. And God said, I'm going to credit you as righteousness. Then, listen to this in verse 6. 
Abraham believed and was credited to him as righteous. Verse 7. And then he also said to him, right? This is what God said. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans and to give you this land and take possession of it. So he says, in addition to giving you all these offspring, I have led you out of your own land and you see this land, I am giving it to you. All of it, right? But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So in the same sentence, right, where God just showed him all the stars and said, I'll provide, and Abraham said, I believe. And he was true in that because God credited to him. His belief was real. God, in the same sentence, stops and goes, and you see this land? I'm going to give it to you. And you know what Abraham says? He says, but, he says, but Yahweh Adonai. In other words, but, but sovereign God, right, a, a supreme ruler, Lord God, how could I possibly take possession of it? Which is fascinating, right? So here Abram is again. God has promised him something. And he addresses him as Lord, Savior, all these incredible things. But his heart betrays him. He looks at this land and thinks it's impossible. Just after God had promised and showed him something that was impossible that would come. He believed it. And in the same breath, he turns around and lets his disbelief creep in again. This is Abraham, right? This is why it's so incredibly challenging to have our lips and our hearts align. And most of us pay this lip service to God. We say, God, I believe in you. I believe that you are mighty, you are holy. There is nothing that you can't do. I believe that you are Lord over all and supreme over all. And our hearts don't buy it. They betray us. Our lips say it. But then our hearts, we prepare other ways. We prepare other actions. We prepare ourselves for the disappointment. We protect ourselves. We set ourselves up because there's no way that I can take possession of that land even though God promised. And there's no way I can have offspring like that even though God has promised. But I can still address God and at least let him think I'm trying. And most of us live in that place. Our lips and our hearts don't align. So in order for us to truly understand the lordship of Adonai, to believe that God is supreme over all, we've got to get our hearts in line with what our mouths are saying, which is when I say that God is Lord and supreme over all, I believe it. I'm not going to waver in it. And things don't have to go my way to prove that will happen. I believe that God is on the throne and that he will reign and that he is who he says he is, and I will not waver in that belief even when the world and things get rocky. Even when the things don't go the way I want them to doesn't change the fact that God is powerful. God had told Abraham that he would provide for him and he would give him a great nation. And Abraham believed but not in his heart. And therefore at the end of his life he is petrified. And God said, why are you afraid? I am your reward and I am your shield. And Abraham says, yes you are sovereign God. And his heart goes, no way. I live, I live in that place, right? So the first principle we have to understand is that our lips, the things that we say with our lips, and the things that we believe in our heart must align. It's the great battle of our lives, right? Principle one. Principle two is that when we finally get to that place where our lips and our hearts align, what our hearts believe about God must be demonstrated in our actual lives, Right? So principle two carries that first one forward. If we say this with our mouth and we believe it with our heart, then when we believe it with our heart, it has to affect how we live. So what we believe in our hearts and what we demonstrate with our lives must align. Let's look at Exodus chapter four. Let's talk about Moses. 
So we, you should be familiar with Moses' story because three weeks ago we explored it in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is out tending sheep for his father-in-law Jethro. God appears to him in the burning bush, right? This is where he has this incredible encounter with the great I am. And God says to Moses, he says, Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and you are going to deliver the people. They're going to actually follow you out of the land, right? All 1.5 or 3 million of them, somewhere in that range. You're going to lead them out of the land back to this mountain where you're going to worship me. And Moses says, what do I tell them, God? They're not going to believe me. What's your name? And that's when God looks at Moses and he says, tell them the I am sent you, for I am who I am, right? That's where we get the actual concept of Yahweh, and we talked about how we got there. You can go back and listen to it. It's an incredible story. So God gives Moses this incredible thing, and then he goes through all of chapter 3 telling Moses exactly how it's going to happen. He's going to turn a rod into a snake, and he's going to do all these incredible things, and he's going to actually go before Pharaoh, and this whole story goes all the way into chapter 4, where Moses is now going to be sent. And let's look at chapter 4 and look at how Moses responds to this incredible concept. And remember, Moses is encountering Yahweh. He's encountering God's ever-presence. Everything in chapter 3 tells us that Moses understands who God is and who he's talking to. And this is what happens in chapter 4. God said all this to Moses, and Moses said this to the Lord. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord. The word there is Yahweh. Moses said to Yahweh. O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to me to your servant. Spoken to your servant. I am slow to speech and tongue. So God explains all of this in chapter 3, what he's calling Moses to and how is he going to do it. And Moses finally gets to a breaking point and he says this. He says, Yahweh, and then you can see it right there, O Lord, which is Adonai, Yahweh, Adonai, right? Supreme, sovereign, ruler, God. I have never been eloquent in the past, right? This is Moses who was raised in Pharaoh's household, who's now close to 80. And he says, I haven't been in the past, and I'm not eloquent now since you've even been speaking to me. So even in the past hour, however long they've been talking, I haven't been eloquent. I am slow to speech in tongue. So he's saying, sovereign, mighty, holy God who is calling me this incredible task, I can't do it. I believe that you are Lord over all. I believe that you are supreme over all. You are Yahweh Adonai, but I cannot do this. So what does God do? Kind of like he does with, with uh, Abram. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight and makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord Yahweh? Now go and I will help you and I will speak and teach you what to say. So he says this, stop talking. I gave you your mouth. I can make men speak and I can make them mute. I will go with you and I will teach you what to say. So God's reply to Moses is, you call me supreme, you call me Lord, and then tell me I can't do this as if you were going to do it. I will do it through you. Why? Because I gave you your mouth. Because I made you. I can make you speak and I can make you mute. In other words, I am Lord. The one that you call out an I, that is me. And I will go with you and I will tell you and teach you what to say. And so what does Moses say, right? <laughs> but Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. 
You can see the words there, right? But Moses said, O Adonai, supreme, sovereign, Lord of all that can do all, please send someone else. And look at verse 14. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. Kind of wish Moses would have said, all right, I'm in. But he doesn't. Why? Because what Moses believed about God and everything that we see in chapter 3 tells us that he believes that God is Yahweh, is Adonai, but he can't get his life to do it. He actually hears God say, I will give you the words. I will give you everything you need. I will give you a staff. I will give you miraculous signs. I will be the one that speaks for you and with you. God actually gives Moses an incredible blueprint that he usually doesn't give anyone in Scripture. He usually just tells people to go. And I'll show you when you get there. Well, he gives Moses his incredible plan and tells him how it's going to unfold, tells him what he's going to do, even says, I gave you your mouth. I'm going to give you every single word. And he's speaking to him out of a flaming bush that's not burned up. Like all the signs, you'd be like, this is probably God's probably good with this, right? Like I can trust this guy. But Moses cannot get his life into the obedient circle. He just says, please don't make me do it. And the reason that God's anger burned against Moses was because what Moses believed in his heart was not reflected in how he lived. God won't tolerate it. God calls us to be men and women of action when it comes to our faith. James talks about it. The Bible's full of this idea that if we truly believe these things about God, they're going to change how we act. God has given Moses everything he needed just to say, God, I will go where you send me. But Moses is pleading with God saying, I'm not going to do it. Begging him to send someone else. And God's anger burned against Moses. That's our second principle, right? That, That once our lips, our lips, the things that we say with our lips and the things we believe in our heart must align. But once our hearts believe that, our actions must demonstrate it. So in order for us to truly submit to the lordship of who God is, to the supreme authority God, right, we have to be able with our mouth to confess that, God, you are Adonai, you are supreme, you are ruler, you are Lord, and I believe that in my heart. Even though the world is showing me a different picture and says it can't be done, I believe that you can do all things because you are Lord of lords. You are capital L over lowercase l. You are bigger than anything this world has to offer, and I believe it. And God says, if you believe it, then live it. Then our things that we believe in our heart must align with our lives. And Moses believed it, but he could not get his life to do it. Whether he was afraid or didn't want to or was just 80 or just didn't actually want to leave. All the excuses that you and I can muster up when God calls us to do things. I want you to go and do this. Oh, I'll get my friends together and we'll pray about it. God said, actually, I already told you to do it. We don't really need to gather everybody together. Right? I've called you to this for years. God continues to show us and tell us that he's our reward and our shield. I will give you what you need. I made your mouth. Why are you afraid? I will teach you what to say. All these promises that God has given us in Scripture. And still we can't get our lives to actually demonstrate what we say with our mouth and believe with our heart. It's that why this concept is so challenging. It's great in concept, difficult in practice, right? So we've got to let our lips and our hearts align. Our hearts and our actions have to align. Those are the deep first principles. 
this theme is actually carried into the New Testament, right? The idea of the lordship of God is carried into the, the New Testament. The Adonai is carried into the word kurios in the Greek, which is the word Lord. It's used 700 and something times for Jesus. The book of Acts actually uses the term Jesus is Lord or the lordship of Christ 97 times and only uses him as Savior twice. And somewhere along the way in our kind of evangelical circles, we've kind of created this dichotomy where we love to talk about Jesus as Savior, but we don't explore the idea of what it means to be Jesus as Lord, right? And the third principle in all this is that I believe you cannot accept Christ and not acknowledge him as Lord. In other words, we can't understand the acceptance of Christ without the surrendering to his lordship. It's the same thing with our hearts and our, lo- and our mouths. We can't seem to say something and not believe it. In other words, I can't accept the grace of Christ and not understand and surrender to the lordship, his lordship in my life. We see this played out in a bunch of places, but the place I want to turn to is Matthew chapter 7. Um, Sermon on the Mount. Right at the end of it, the very end of it, as he's coming to this great teaching. Remember the Sermon on the Mount wasn't really a sermon. Jesus went up on the mountainside with his disciples. It was actually 12 guys, and a crowd kind of broke out. As Jesus was sitting there teaching them, people gathered around him. So it ended up kind of growing and turning into this thing. It was more just a teaching moment. It's one of the largest sort of sections of non-interrupted teaching that we see of Jesus in all the New Testament, right? And we get to the end of it, and Jesus has talked about everything from adultery to divorce to murder. We get to this place where I think is probably some of the most frightening statements in all of Scripture. And I think you'll see why. And this is what Jesus is saying at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to a bunch of people that actually follow him. These aren't just the Pharisees. This has started with his disciples. And this is what he says in 2021. Or uh, 721. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and that's the Greek word kurios. It's the same concept that's played out with Adonai. It's this idea of Jesus is supreme. He is ruler. He has the authority. He is Lord, right? So not everyone who says to me, kurios, kurios, or Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons and perform miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So Jesus gets to the end of this teaching of his disciples, people that truly followed him. And he says, I want to tell you something, and I want you to listen to me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says with their lips that I am supreme, I am ruler, I am authority over all, not everyone who says that to me will actually enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father. And on that day, right, many will cry out and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not do a bunch of great things in your name? Did we not prophesy and cast out demons and do miraculous things? Like, did we not demonstrate religious activity that was unexplainable? And Jesus' response to them is, I will look at them and I will say, away from me, I never knew you. What tells us a couple of things. One, we can say that Jesus is Lord and actually never surrender to his true lordship, right? And two, surrendering to the lordship of Christ means knowing him and doing his will or the will of the Father. So to truly surrender to the lordship of Christ means that on some level we have to know the heartbeat of God and God to actually get our eyes into a place where they are actionable in following what he desires. 
And not in terms of doing the things, right? Because the people that called out to him did the things. They were casting out demons and doing miraculous signs and prophesying, yet they did not know God. So there's this connection between the knowing of God, the belief in my heart, and the doing of the things that is incredibly important. Because the doing of the religious activities, right, doesn't matter. Which means that you can show up to church every single day for the rest of your life, and it has as much to do with being saved as riding a bike does. The doing of the things without the knowing and the surrendering to the Lord is worthless. But most of us live in a place where we want to perform for God without actually having to surrender our lives to him. We want to do the moral high ground so that we feel better about ourselves without actually having to do anything that would be costly to me in terms of surrendering my desires, my life, my way, my wants, my things. And the petrifying part of that text is that those people didn't know the difference. They actually made it all the way to the end of time or at judgment day, and they thought they had done it. Look at all the stuff we did. Did we not do all these things for you? And Jesus says, no, I never knew you. You never surrendered to me. I was never your Lord. You did the stuff to do the stuff. And it's petrifying, right? Because the call, the follower of Christ is, well, really, it's to come and die. So if you get to the how in all this, like how do I surrender to the lordship of Adonai, of Curios? How do I get my lips and my heart and my heart and my actions to align? Like what's the actual actionable piece to avoid this petrifying scenario that's played out in Matthew? Well, it's easy. It's this idea. Well, it's easy, again, in concept, difficult in practice. It's this easy idea of saying, I've got to be willing to die to me, to take myself as Lord and the things that I want to have around me and put them most literally to death. John talks about it. They all talk about it. And Jesus says in those Gospels, he says, listen, if you want to gain your life, you must lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will gain it for eternity. In other words, the idea is is if we want to know and have full abundant life here on earth and the promise of eternal life to come, we must die to ourselves here. We must put to death ourself. The idea of surrendering to Jesus' lordship means that I surrender to, to who he is as supreme overall. Everything that I desire and I want and I think I need, I put to death. And he's not calling us to kill our hopes and dreams. He's basically just calling us to surrender all of our will to him and say, God, I want what you want. My hopes and dreams are tiny compared to the incredible things that God wants to show you and do in you. I mean, what do I know, right? Why would I actually look at the God of the universe as Abraham did, taking the stars out and counting the billions upon billions, the God that made those, and the God that made the mouth of Moses, and try and tell him what I want? Why in the world would I want what I want? I want what he wants. If he makes the stars and formed me in my mother's womb? I want a new car? Like God wants to give me literally, most literally, the keys to this beautiful knowledge of who he is, knowing good from evil and knowing the heartbeat of what he is, having a full, abundant, true, incredible life in which peace and forgiveness and grace reign through my heart. And I'm freaking out about $400. And I'm begging God to give me what I want. What a joke, right? 
This is the God of the universe, supreme ruler of all, Lord of lords. We should be desperate to put to death what we want. How small are the things that we want? How small are the desires of our heart compared to the vastness and the glory of God? So how do we do it? Well, we die to ourselves. Not what I want, but what you want, right? Ultimately, Jesus' picture in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing full well what's coming. Lord, if there's any other way, however, not my will, but your will. Ultimate death to self, right? Incredibly challenging, but it is the picture of understanding God as Adonai, as Jesus, as Curios, as Lord, as supreme, as authority. Death to self. Do you know how many marriages would be saved if we would learn this concept of death to self? How many relationships, earthly relationships, would be rectified if we begin to put this into practice to allow our pride just to fall by the wayside and be filled with God's presence? Can you imagine the things that God would open our eyes to and demonstrate to us when we laid our lowercase lords down and our lowercase gods down and we said, you are all that matters. I believe you are bigger than all of them and I will serve you and you alone and not myself. I'm not going to try and win an argument with my wife for the sake of winning and making her feel small. I'm not going to try and get what I can financially in this world and store it all up. I'm not going to try and get the world to recognize me or know me or see me. I'm not going to just claw to get to the top or figure all these things out. Or I'm not going to worry about whether I'm going to stay single or be single. Or I'm not going to worry about whether I'm going to get that promotion or not. I'm not going to worry about how these things. I'm going to give my heart over to the idea that you are God. You are supreme. You are Lord. You are ruler. And you get all of me, including my family, my life, my children, my heart. Everything I have belongs to you. It's all yours. And so, Lord, show me the vastness of the stars. Show me the beauty of what you have for me, and let my will be what yours is. So on that day, when we stand before the Lord, he looks over and he says, I know you. You surrendered your life to me. You know my will. Your lips and your heart and your heart and your life, they aligned. They aligned. You didn't say you accepted Christ. You surrendered fully to his lordship and just said, what's mine is yours. All of it. This is the idea of using the name Adonai, of using the name Curious, of calling Jesus his Lord, of calling God supreme and authoritative. It's what he deserves and what he demands. And it should be an easy application for us because who wants to go up against the God that made all? created all and hung it all together and holds it all together. I want what he wants. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of the vastness of the universe, for the depth of who you are as creator, for the supreme concept that you are Lord and ruler of all. How small are our hopes and our dreams? How small are our desires? Lord, so many of us are running around with a sort of me theology that says, God, you exist to give me what I need, and therefore my life, my prayer life is steeped in the give me, show me, reveal me, do these things for me. But God, the incredible picture in Scripture is that you are God, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. You don't need us to acknowledge you as Lord. You are Lord, period. You're not holding out your hat and saying, please vote for me or like me. 
You don't need anything from humanity. But yet you invite us into this incredible relationship with you in which you are our Lord and our Savior. You are a Redeemer. You are our Deliverer. You are the one that puts the mouths on our face and the words in our heart. You are the one that hung the stars and promises us. As you told Abraham, you are our protector and our shield and our great reward. What else could I possibly want than to have my reward be God and my sh- him be my shield? So Lord, as we wrestle with the concept of what it means to lay down our lives to the lordship of Adonai, would you introduce us and reintroduce us to this concept of death to self? It's not about what I want, what I desire. It's about you, surrendering to you, and they're living in a way in which you pour through me in my relationships, relationship with my wife or my husband or my children or my coworkers, the people around me. Like, I want to exude this picture of Christ, not picture of me. What a disaster I am. So, Lord, as we close our time in worship this morning, I pray that you would press those truths on our hearts, that we may come face to face with this idea of true surrender to the beauty and the vastness and the greatness of the Lordship of God. That our lips and our hearts might align, that our hearts and our actions might align, that we might not try to accept Christ, but simply surrender to his Lordship, therefore and thereby knowing him and serving him. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Jesus, mighty King of heaven, Thou, Lord, our guide shall be. Thy commission we rely on. We will follow none but Thee. Jesus, mighty King of heaven, Thou, Lord, our guide shall be. Thy commission we rely on.
God is Adonai, that Jesus is Lord, what we're basically saying is that you are supreme over all, you are Lord over all, and the challenge in there becomes that our lips and our hearts have got to align, our hearts and our actions have got to align, that we access that and do that through, what's up, Holmes? Come here. Now you're gone? Okay. We do that through death to self. Put that into practice and go in peace.